Well, good evening, Hellos Church. Hope you're all doing well. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So if I could invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Judges chapter 19. If you do not have a Bible, know that some are provided on the table over in our connect area. We'd love for you to grab one of those and even keep it. If you do not own a Bible, let it be our gift to you. Judges chapter 19. And as you're finding your way there, I'm going to voice another prayer for us before we dive in. Heavenly Father, we believe in faith that all scripture is breathed out by you and that all scripture is profitable for us, including the passages of scripture that we are going to study tonight. And so, Father, I ask that you would open our eyes to see what is profitable here, that you would open our hearts to receive life-giving truths from your, from your word. Father, we ask that your word would continue to do the work of building your church and changing and transforming your people. God, we look forward to the day when all is made new and all that is wrong with the world right now is eradicated. We look forward to that day, but I pray that you would give us grace to endure in faith the meantime as we live towards that end. God, we ask and we pray that you would grace our time of study in the scriptures tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on December 26, 2004, the third largest earthquake ever recorded uh, took place deep beneath the Indian Ocean. It registered 9.1 on the Richter scale. It produced a tsunami that, was, uh, that had waves upwards of 100 feet high and a tsunami that moved up to the speed of 500 miles per hour and covered a radius of 3,000 miles. It was the deadliest tsunami ever recorded, claiming 230,000 lives. But there was one people group living right in its path that survived without a single casualty. And that was the Moken people. The Moken people are an Austronesian ethnic group that live on the open seas. They're a seafaring People. They are on the oceans from birth to death. They live in handcrafted wooden boats as homes. Their kids learn to swim before they learn to walk. They have an uncommon ability to hold their breath longer than most. But it wasn't their seafaring skills that saved them in that moment. Instead, it was what one writer described as their, their intimacy with the ocean. They knew the ocean very well. And so the Moken know how to read the ocean's moods, and they know how to read the ocean's messages far better than any oceanographer. They read ocean waves the way you and I might read street signs while we're driving. And on the day of the earthquake, a photographer from Bangkok was taking pictures of the Moken people. And as the sea started to recede, she noticed that many of them were crying. They sensed what was coming. They recognized that the birds had stopped chirping, the chikadas had gone silent, the elephants were heading toward higher ground, the dolphins were swimming farther out to sea. There were fishermen in the same vicinity as the Moken who were blindsided by the tsunami and had no survivors. And one of the Moken who survived said they were, those fishermen were collecting squid, but they didn't know how to look. A local anthropologist studying that moment said the water receded very fast and one small wave came in such a way that the Moken quickly recognized it as abnormal. And so what you had there was a people who knew how to look, 
a people who knew how to see. They refused to ignore the warning signs that were all around them. And because they did not ignore the warning signs, they were able to flee to safety when the tsunami came. Well, today we're stepping into Judges chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at the final three chapters of this book, a book we've been studying for a little while now. And I want you to know that these final three chapters in the book of Judges, they they serve as a warning to us. Specifically, the story that we're going to look at today, it, it illustrates what life, or it illustrates the ways in which life unravels when self is king. When people insist on living according to their own way, doing whatever is right in their own eyes, this story illustrates all the ways life unravels when self is king. And it's not pretty. In fact, today's story is one of the most vile stories you'll ever read. It's vile, it's repulsive, it's a story that we should read and in some sense mourn the human condition because of what we see here. And while I'm going to do my best to avoid being unnecessarily graphic and too tedious in detail, I want you to know that I have no intention of protecting us from this passage. I have no intention on protecting us from what the Bible depicts in this story. Because there are reasons God gives us stories like these in the scriptures. One of those reasons is that stories like these serve as an example to us. They serve as warnings to us. This is what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he's looking back on some of the negative stories that arise in the Old Testament. And he says, look, these stories serve as examples. They serve as warnings so that, quote, we will not desire evil things as they did. In other words, that we won't be like them. But there's another reason why stories like this show up in the Bible, and that's because we have a God who deals with life as it is. He deals with life as it is rather than the selective Instagram ways we present it to be. You know, life isn't Instagram. Life is raw. Life is real. Life is messy. Life is messed up in many ways. And I know that we prefer not to deal with the gross underbelly of human nature and the way that we wreck ourselves in this world. But, and I know that we don't want to own up to our contributions to the moral chaos surrounding us. But as Christians, as Christians, those who are following Jesus, believing in the gospel, you realize that we are, that we are to be hopeful realists in the world that is. That means you and I can deal with the world as it is, just as our God deals with the world as it is. You see, the gospel gives us freedom to deal honestly with ourselves, to deal honestly with our families, to deal honestly with our churches, to deal honestly with our society, to deal honestly with our nation, to deal honestly with our world. We can address the world as is without despairing. And without growing cynical with respect to the future, we are hopeful realists. And there is coming a day when God makes all things new. And he turns the the mess we make of our lives into trophies of his redeeming grace. So I want us to look at the story, and I don't want us to ignore the warning signs here. I want us to see them and then let them take us where we belong. That is to Jesus. And so here we come, chapters 19 through 21. Wrapping up our study of Judges, this, these three chapters tell one story. 
And the story can be broken down into four scenes or into four acts, and there's a surprising conclusion at the end of it all. So we pick up beginning in verse one of chapter 19. It says, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. But she was unfaithful to him and left him for her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. She was there for for four months. Then her husband got up and followed her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had his servant with him and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him to her father's house and and when the girl's father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him and he stayed with him for three days. They ate, drank, and spent the nights there. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning and prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, have something to eat to keep up your strength, and then you can go. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the girl's father said to the man, please agree to stay overnight and enjoy yourself. The man got up to go, but his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed and spent the night there again. He got up early in the morning of the fifth day to leave, but the girl's father said to him, please keep up your strength. So they waited until late afternoon, and the two of them ate. The man got up to go with his concubine and his servant when his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, look, night is coming. Please spend the night. See, the day is almost over. Spend the night here. Enjoy yourself. Then you can get up early tomorrow for your journey and go home. Now, there is so much happening in the opening scene of this story, so much that kind of sets the, the, the tempo of what's going to, well, the tempo that will really speed out up throughout the rest of the story. First, I want you to see how there's not a single name given in that opening passage. In fact, anonymity runs throughout the final three chapters. The only exception is a guy named Phineas, whose name shows up in chapter 20, only as a way for us to kind of date these events so we can kind of know when they transpired in the history of Israel. But the main characters of the story are not named, and that communicates something very important. It means that these individuals that we are introduced to, they actually typify what life looks like when self is king. They typify what type of society is created when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. What that means is that this Levite, who's supposed to be a spiritual leader, serving in the tabernacle, assisting the priests, representing God amongst the people, this Levite has now come to represent all Levites, and he's going to show us what spiritual leadership was like back in this time. And then this woman, she comes to represent all women in Canaan. She represented all the ways in which women were viewed and how they were treated in a society when self is king. And we're told that this Levite acquired this woman as his bride, or better yet, his concubine. That is to say that this woman was his second wife, and he took her not because he loved her, he took her because he lusted after her. She was his concubine. In verse 2, we're told that he was her husband. And then later, it's interesting, when you get to verse 27, he's described as this concubine's master. So there's some tension in this marriage. It's a messy picture. Earlier in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God makes clear his design for marriage. He makes it very clear in that blueprint in Eden where he says that marriage should be a forever and exclusive union shared between one man and one woman. But outside of Eden, outside of God's blueprint, we find a place where self is king. And when self is king, God's design is distorted. God's design is discarded. This is why 
You should not be surprised when you read the Old Testament and discover how many believers in the Lord had multiple wives. Even Father Abraham had multiple wives. Some of them had concubines. concubines. But we've got to understand that the practice of polygamy in the Old Testament, every time it shows up, it brings heartache, it brings suffering, it does not contribute to flourishing. And so what that means is that just because the Bible describes something as taking place, reflecting to readers what the world was like and what people were like, that does not mean that God endorses that practice. It doesn't mean he favors it. It doesn't necessarily mean that he blesses it. And this is an important dynamic for us to discover when we're reading our Bibles because I think that there's a logic out there and favor of what might be called same-sex marriage that appeals to the practice of polygamy in the Old Testament as justification for that dynamic. They'll say things like, well, if this happened in the Bible, how can you say these other types of unions and these other type of marriages aren't, aren't honoring to God and approved and endorsed by God? Well, we have to understand that both polygamy and same-sex marriage betrays God's Edenic design This is why when Jesus and the apostles, every time they talk about marriage, they go to Eden. They don't go to Abraham. Abraham isn't the paradigm for what family life should be. That's found in Eden. So that's where Jesus and the apostles always go. And so what you have here in Judges chapter 19 is a family that's fallen far from Eden. They've fallen far from Eden. And as a result, their marriage is suffering. If you notice verse two, it says that this concubine was unfaithful to to the man that she married and she left him. Now there's a lot of ambiguity here in the Hebrew. We don't know for sure if she cheated on him, which if that's the case, that's kind of ironic considering he has another wife. We also don't know if, if maybe she was just angry with him because he wasn't picking up the slack in the home. It wasn't taking out the trash and doing some of those other things. And so maybe she just got fed up with his laziness and left. That's a possibility. There's even one scholar who makes a compelling case that verse two could actually be read that and his concubine hoard for him. And then she got upset and left. Which would mean that this man, this Levite was pimping her out. That he was her master. And so she gets tired of it and she leaves. There are many potential issues here. As there are many potential issues in all of our marriages, in every case when self is king, marriages will suffer. Marriages suffer when a husband is not exclusively devoted to his wife and vice versa. Marriages suffer when a husband is not putting his wife's best interests ahead of his own and vice versa. When self is king, marriages suffer. This is where, why when you get to Ephesians chapter five and Paul begins to tease out the deep meaning of marriage and he says the deep meaning of marriage is that marriage serves as a living illustration of the gospel and he challenges married persons. He says, husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. That is sacrificially, that is selflessly, that is in a way in which you are out serving your wife. That's how you were to love her. And then he says, a wife is to honor her husband above any other person in the world. A wife is to honor her husband as as the church would honor Christ. That means to honor him above all else. That includes kids. 
That includes siblings, that includes parents. You are to honor your husband above any other person in the world. And if, it, if it's ever one-sided, because one of the two variables, one of the two persons begin to live as though the self is king, that's when that's going to deteriorate. And that's when the mar- marriage will begin to suffer. Now, husbands and potential husbands in the room, I believe the initial onus, the, the heavy responsibility falls on you. I believe that you were to woo your wife by outserving her. I believe you were to woo her by pursuing her the way Jesus would pursue his people. And it's interesting that as men, as, as husbands, as we give ourselves to that calling, you're gonna find a surprising development in the happening in the heart of the one you're pursuing, in the heart of your bride. You're gonna find her heart melting in a way so she begins to gladly trust you and gladly follow your leadership in various ways in which you were called to lead as a husband. When that happens, the two of you then are able to take on this world for the glory of God with a faithful and fruitful tenacity. That's what we want in our marriages. But in order for that to happen, self can't be king. You have to check the self. You have to deny the self. You have to sacrifice the self. You have to move in Jesus' direction, following Christ into the various roles and rhythms and responsibilities that he has called you to as as his people. And so let me say that if those of you who are married, be proactive in the pursuit of your marital health. Don't wait for things to get tense. Don't wait for things to get to get sideways before you start seeking help and counsel and mentorship and support. Be proactive in the here and now. And then those of you who may be struggling, maybe your marriage has hit a rough spot, let me encourage you to start seeking counsel quickly. Recognizing that seeking counsel, seeking help is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of wisdom. Recognizing that we all need help. We all need people to dispense grace into our lives through words, through time, through attention, through counsel. And so seek that out. Strength seeks help. It's weakness that gives up. So here you have a situation where self is king and a marriage is suffering. We're told that four months pass before the Levites seek to reconcile with his concubine. And even then, his motives are suspect. Chances are he just wants to gratify himself sexually. It's been four months. Or he wants to get paid. He's, he, his, his margins are shrinking, and so he wants to get paid, so he goes after her. He's clearly, and you're gonna see this, he's clearly not motivated by love. And so the father-in-law that he meets, his behavior in this story is strange. He shows the son-in-law hospitality, but he goes a bit overboard. He's a little too much. He insists that the Levite stays for multiple days, but notice that he encourages the Levite on two occasions, enjoy yourself. Now that's the narrator's just subtle indication, just another sign of the times where everyone enjoyed themselves by doing what was right in their own eyes. It's another indication that we're talking about self being king. And so maybe the father-in-law fears that his wife's, his daughter's actions in leaving the Levite would bring shame and disgrace upon his family. So maybe he's just trying to appease the anger of the Levite so that maybe he would speak well of them or maybe he would not press charges against them because there were charges that could have been pressed pressed as a result of what's what's going on. But what's interesting is that as the father-in-law and the son-in-law are talking, they are You don't hear anything from the woman. The concubine isn't speaking up. She's not actively engaged in the process. She's just a passive bystander. In other words, she's been reduced to an object and no concern for her is being addressed. 
And I would remind you to keep in mind that the anonymity here suggests that these men and women stand for all of their type in Israel. That this is how Levites lived. This is how fathers thought. This is how women were treated. In other words, things get really dark when self is king. And you really begin to see this as you step into scene two, which begins in verse 10. The man and his concubine and his servant, they pack up to return home. And while they're en route, they were near a place called Jebus, which was a foreign city, meaning it wasn't occupied by Israelis or Jewish people. And it was getting late, so the servant asked his master, hey, can we stay here? And notice the master's reply in verse 12. But his master replied, we will not stop at a foreign city where there are no Israelites. He says, let's move on to Gibeah. In other words, these aren't our people. These aren't, this isn't our tribe. We can't stop here. We must go to an Israelite place because an Israelite place, we'd be full of people who show us hospitality and treat us kindly. That was his expectation. So he bypasses this non-Jewish Gentile city for the sake of another. And it says they arrived at Gibeah, but it's interesting. They arrive there, and when they do, they walk into the city square, and they set up shop there. Verse 15, but no one in this Israel, in this Jewish city, no one took them into their home to spend the night. Nobody showed them hospitality. Nobody extended kindness towards them. And fairly soon, an old man from Ephraim, that is, a man who wasn't even a part of that Benjaminite city, he wasn't a part of, that wasn't his hometown, he was an outsider just like the Levite, he comes walking by and he asks them, where are you going and where do you come from? Verse 18, he answered him, we're traveling from Bethlehem and Judah to, to the remote hill country of Ephraim, where I am from. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his home, although there's straw and feed for the donkeys, and I have bread and wine for me, my concubine and the servant with us. There is nothing we lack. Now, notice that the Levite states correctly where, he's, where he comes from, but he lies about where he is going. He says, I'm going to the house of the Lord. It gives the impression that he is a pious, faithful worshiper of the Lord, that he's following the Lord closely. And what this does, this will kind of disarm this stranger to say, okay, yeah, I'll let you in because if I let you into my home, I'm not just showing hospitality to a fellow Israeli. I'm actually honoring Yahweh. I'm respecting the Lord. So he just kind of paints himself in this flattering kind of way. And so the old man says, welcome. I'll take care of everything you need. But notice there's a warning there. And this is strange considering they're in a Jewish town. They're in a Benjaminite, Benjaminite city. He says, only don't spend the night in the square. It's an ominous warning to this, to this crew. Have you ever visited a city and been warned don't to go, not to go to a certain part of town? When Kim and I lived in New Orleans, we had to issue that warning a lot of times when visitors would come and visit us. We had to clarify what parts of the city are good to hang out in, what parts of the city could be dangerous to go out to hang out in. That's what's happening here. But you wouldn't expect this warning. After all, this is a city made up of God's people, right? But notice verse 22. And here's where everything gets crazy. While they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden... Wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. 
the owner of the house went out and said to them, please don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't commit this horrible outrage. Here, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine now. Abuse them and do, what, and do whatever you want to them. But don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and took her outside. The man there is most likely the Levite. They raped her and abused her all night until morning. At daybreak, they let her go. Early that morning, the woman made her way back. And as it was, as it was getting light, she collapsed at the doorway of the man's house where her master was. So these wicked men approached the home of this, this guy. They were bent on humiliating the Levite guest that was there. Now this scene isn't primarily about homosexual lust, although there are some implications there. It's not about homosexual lust. If it was about homosexual lust, then they could have offered up the Levite's male servant to appease these wicked men, but that's not what happened. You see, this story is about power and shame. And the wicked men wind up taking the concubine. But notice they take the concubine because the concubine was offered up and she was not defended by her husband. We're talking about a society where self is king. And in such societies, women are often objectified and devalued. This concubine was property. And she was viewed as being less valuable and more expendable than a man. And once again, we're reminded how far human beings have fallen from Eden. It is in Eden where God created human beings in his image. It is in Eden where he says, I'm gonna create, I'm gonna create humans in my image, male and female. I'm going to create them. And in so doing, he endows upon men and women equal dignity, equal worth, equal value. He he endows his image upon both men and women. That's in Eden, but outside of Eden, where self is king, divine image bearers, specifically women, are often devalued and objectified. And wherever women are viewed as objects rather than human beings created in the image of God, they will soon become the victims of sexual harassment, rape, and abuse. It is no wonder why this is so common in our culture given how sexualized everything is. It is no wonder how common sexual harassment and the mistreatment of women occurs. And this passage stands as a warning to us today. And so I want to speak to the men specifically. I want you guys to hear the warnings of this text. This passage impresses upon us the responsibility we have not to leave women in the dust where they must defend themselves from being objectified or devalued. It shouldn't fall upon a woman's shoulders to have to speak up for herself or to defend herself in a society where self is king. That is part of our responsibility as men created in the image of God just like them to stand up and to speak out and to advocate for the value and the dignity 
of women. This means, gentlemen, that you, and you must learn to shun industries such as the porn industry that objectifies women for the sake of male sexual gratification. This means we want to shun those types of industries. We want to turn our back on anything that would objectify women. We should consider the sources of our entertainment and our music and our movie. We got to consider everything if we're going to take this charge and this warning seriously because you're going to see an image here in a moment that is haunting me right now. But before we get to that image, I want you to also see how there's something intentional going on in the way this story is presented. You see, this narrator is crafting this story in such a way to echo events that happened in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, in a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you're familiar with Genesis chapter 19. It's a moment where strangers come to the town of Sodom and wicked men surround the house and they insist on having sex with them. The host begins to beg them not to and offers up some women instead. But it turns out these strangers were more than strangers. They were actually angels, and so they struck these guys blind. But that doesn't happen in this story because here in Gibeah, the Levite takes his concubine and feeds her to the dogs outside. And they rape her and abuse her all throughout the night. And you know, perhaps, that Sodom is the great example of Old Testament rebellion against God, and you know that things don't go well for Sodom, that God's judgment would fall upon that city, wiping it from the earth. And here we find the people of Israel, and here's the connection between Genesis 19 and Judges 19. The narrator of this story is saying, look, the people of Israel are just like the people of Sodom. They're no different. They've been canonized. They, they're now living their lives as if God never redeemed them, as if God never made promises to them. They, they've, now, they've now become like Sodom. The connection is uncanny. There are the same number of Hebrew words that are used to tell the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The same number of Hebrew words are used to tell the story here in Genesis chapter 19. It's a remarkable connection that the narrator is trying to get us to see. And he's saying, look, the people of Israel are no different and no better than the people of Sodom. They're behaving the same way. This is a scary thought. Then you get to verse 27. It says, when her master got up in the morning, opened the doors of the house and went out to leave on his journey, there was the woman, his concubine, collapsed near the doorway of the house. And here's the image. Collapsed near the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. Reaching out for help and no help came, reaching out to a door that remained closed. No advocacy, no defense, no help, no dignity. So much so that even in verse 28, the Levite walks outside and he says coldly, get up, let's go. But then it says there was no response. We don't know if she was dead at this point or if she was unconscious. It's not clear. So the man takes her and puts her on his donkey and set out for home. Verse 29 when he, when he entered his house, he picked up a knife, took hold of his concubine, cut her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and then sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or has been seen since the day the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt until now. Think it over, discuss it, and speak up. This is such cold and callous disregard for human life. Again, we don't know if she's dead or if she's just unconscious. Regardless, he treats her as though she's an animal carcass. 
She cuts her up and distributes her limbs to the different tribes in Israel. He's trying to provoke something amongst the people of Israel by this gesture. And he doesn't seem to be upset about the treatment of this woman who was created in the image of God. He seems more upset about the fact that he lost his property. She's been objectified in the worst way possible. Which brings us to scene three. See what all transpires as a result of that event. Scene three, beginning in chapter 20, verse one. And this chapter basically consists of three battles, three wars. I'm gonna summarize most of it. Verse one of chapter 20. All the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came out and the community assembled as one body before the Lord at Mitzpah. The leaders of all the people and of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of God's people. 400,000 armed foot soldiers the Benjaminites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mitzpah. The Israelites asked, tell us, how did this evil act happen? And then notice how the Levite responds. He responds in such a self-serving way. Verse four, the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, answered, I went to Gibeah and Benjamin with my concubine to spend the night. Citizens of Gibeah came to attack me and surround the house at night. He leaves out the fact that they wanted to have sex with him. They intended to kill me, but they raped my concubine and she died. He left out the fact that he pushed her out the door. Then I took my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout Israel, Israel's territory because they have committed a wicked outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are Israelites. Give your judgment and verdict here and now. In other words, you see the Levite here editing the truth. He's editing the truth to cast all blame upon the Benjaminites and to absolve himself of any wrongdoing. He doesn't mention how he failed to defend her. He doesn't mention that he callously threw her to the men. No one in the audience would have suspected that he himself contributed to the death of this girl. And what that is a sign of is that when self is king, truth is made a servant. Truth is no longer served. When self is king, truth is made a servant, meaning we take what's true and we edit it. We edit it to present it to others in the ways that will present ourselves in the best light. We Instagram truth when self is king. We manipulate truth to serve our preferred narratives. We edit it to cast ourselves in the best light possible. We do not let truth to shine its light upon us, exposing everything about us that isn't right within us. It is clear from the story that the Benjaminites, the men of Gibeah, they were villains. They were sinful. They were wicked. They did some terrible things. But it's not so clear in this moment that the Levite was just as wicked. And the Levite was also a sinner. That the Levite was unrighteous. See, the reason why the book of Judges was written and provided in the scriptures, one of the reasons is to showcase to the world that all human beings are sinners separated from God, that all human beings have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes not just Gentiles, pagans, na unbelieving nations. It includes the Jewish people, God's chosen, God's redeemed. This is why Paul would say in Romans chapter three, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Everybody's messed up. Everybody's contributing to the moral chaos of life in the world that is. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. That's Jews and Gentiles. That's religious people and irreligious people alike. The book of Judges puts that square upon the platform, helping us to see 
that reality that truth says all are sinful. Truth says all are culpable. Truth says all are in need, desperate need of redemption and salvation. So the rest of chapter 20 then shows a nation at war with itself. And it's kind of ironic because the people of Israel here are united against the Benjaminites. They haven't been united throughout the whole book. They couldn't unite before this moment, not in their worship of the Lord, not in their claiming of the land of Canaan at the beginning, but they can unite here when they go to war with, against one of the tribes. It says in verse 17, the Israelites, apart from Benjamin, mobilized 400,000 armed men, everyone an experienced warrior. They set out, went to Bethel, and inquired of God. The Israelites asked, who is it to go first to fight for us against the Benjaminites? And the Lord answered, Judah will go first. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? If you were with us at the beginning of this study, this, these words should sound familiar because they're the same words that open up the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 1, verse 1, the people of Israel ask the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? Who's going to go out before us to seize the land that you have promised to give us? And the Lord answered, well, Judah is to go. But the Lord says something promising in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Not only does he say Judah must go, he says, I have handed the land over to, the, to him. And so Israel's failure to trust God in the beginning, because they did not do that, they didn't go forth and, and claim the land that God wanted to give them, that, that failure in the beginning has led to civil war in the end. And in this moment, God does not tell Israel that they will be victorious. He says, go and fight. Just go and fight. He doesn't give them any assurances of victory. And much to everyone's surprise, Israel loses round one. They go out and they fight the Benjaminites. The Benjaminites win. One tribe against 11 and they win. They regroup for round two and they sense something's not right about what's happening. And so in verse 23, it says, they went up, wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of him, should we again attack our brothers, the Benjaminites? Should we go for it again? We just lost. Maybe they're hoping the Lord will say, no, don't go. Just stop fighting, but the Lord doesn't say that. The Lord answers, fight against them. He says, keep fighting, but he doesn't say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you victory. So they go out, they do so, and Israel loses a second time, shamefully, disgracefully, being defeated by one single tribe, the Benjaminites, who is considered the youngest of all the tribes in Israel. And then they ask in verse 28, should we again fight against our brothers, the Benjaminites, or should we stop? Again, hoping the Lord will say, stop, don't go anymore. But the Lord answered, fight. He says, fight. And, but here he finally says, because I will hand them over to you tomorrow. They go out a third time. They employ a different strategy. They do things a little bit differently. Israel wins round three. But the question is, why did the fight go three rounds? Why did the fight go three rounds? Well, it's because a lot of sin led to that conflict. And it's because this war wasn't a holy war. Because in this war, there was no graceful side. There was no faithful side. Neither side was righteous. Neither side was right. This war was not a part of God's plans and purposes for his people in the promised land. Israel wasn't supposed to fight amongst themselves. And the Lord says, okay, if you want to fight amongst yourselves, so be it. And he hands them over to their desires. And their desires lead to a lot of heartache, a lot of strain, a lot of struggle. In other words, the Lord disciplines Israel by letting them fight in this way. But after Israel defeats the Benjaminites, you begin to see more 
evidence of what happens when self is king because Israel finally defeats the Benjaminites, but we're told at the end of chapter 20 that they weren't content with just beating them. They wanted to abolish them. And so we're told at the end that after they defeated the Benjaminites, they went to destroy that, the city of Gibeah. They burn it to the ground. They slaughter every man, woman, child, and animal. And it's clear that Israel was no longer seeking justice. Instead, they were seeking to satisfy their bloodlust. They weren't seeking justice. They were seeking genocide. They were so enraged. They were so bitter. They were so frustrated with the Benjaminites and what they had done. And perhaps they were more mad about losing twice than they were about what started the battle to begin with. And so they were so outraged by all that has transpired that their bitterness betrayed their justice. Bitterness betrays justice when self is king. This happens all the time on a tribal or a national level. It looks like Judges chapter 20. But it can also happen on a personal level that when self is king, bitterness can betray our sense of justice. Now, it can seem less extreme, but it's still destructive when you think about it. If we allow bitterness to take root in our hearts when people offend us or people harm us or people shame us, we will at some point betray justice. And we will do that if our hearts remain untreated with the gospel. This is why the self must be dethroned so that the self isn't acting as judge, jury, and executor, executor of those who do us wrong. The self must be dethroned so that we can look to Jesus believing that he is judge, jury, and executor of all righteousness and justice in the land, in the world. So we want to enthrone Jesus because he alone is capable of upholding justice while extending forgiveness and causing reconciliation to blossom and to flourish, to cause healing to arise. But in light of that, we must not allow our bitterness to fester because when bitterness festers, we can sometimes take justice into our own hands, seek vengeance, and we betray all that the scriptures encourage us about how life works best to believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord and we don't have to take matters into our own hands in moments and in situations like these. Instead, we look to God who is both just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. But here in chapter 20, bitterness betrays justice and vengeance arises and genocide is sought. And then that brings us to the fourth and final scene in chapter 21. You see, at the end of chapter 20, the Benjaminites were reduced to 600 men. That's all that were left of this tribe. But the problem is all their women, children, and animals had been taken away. They were annihilated. And so this Benjaminite tribe was at risk of dying out, of not being a part of the people of Israel anymore. And as the dust begins to settle in chapter 21, Israel starts showing remorse for their fallen kinsmen. They don't want the Benjaminites no longer to go away forever, but there's a problem. Look at verse one of chapter 21. It says, the men of Israel had sworn an oath to Mitzpah. None of us will give his daughter to a Benjaminite in marriage. So they had made an oath. They were so worked up in chapter 20 that they made this oath that they would give no daughter to a Benjaminite in marriage. And so what you find here is that the people of Israel are a people lost within themselves. They've lost sight of who God is. They've lost sight of what God is like. They are not a light to the nations because they are so much like the nations. And in a fit of rage, they make rash vows they feel obliged to keep. Verse two, so the people went to Bethel and sat there before God until evening. 
They wept loudly and bitterly and cried out, why, Lord God of Israel, has it occurred that one tribe is missing in Israel today? This is such an accusatory question. What happened? They should know what happened. They caused everything to happen. This is an accusatory question as they're blaming God for the situation they find themselves in. When self is king, God is often blamed for all that goes wrong in the world. When self is king, you're gonna blame God when things aren't right in your life because of the decisions and the choices that you have freely and perhaps selfishly made. When self is king, God gets blamed. So Israel's blaming God here, and then, but they don't wait for the Lord to give them an answer. Instead, they proceed to try and solve this self-imposed, this self-generated dilemma themselves. They don't want the Benjaminites to die out, but they can't give them any of their daughters because they've made that vow, so they look for another solution, and this solution is terrible. Look at verse four. The next day, the people got up early, built an altar there, and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. The Israelites asked, who of all the tribes of Israel didn't come to the Lord with the assembly? For a great oath had been taken that anyone who had not come to the Lord at Mitzbah would certainly be put to death. That's another foolish vow that they're making. And they discovered that the men of a place called Jabesh Gilead, now this wasn't a tribe of Israel, this was just a little bitty clan of people, not, very, uh, not a part of all the things that were happening amongst the 12 tribes, and they learned that the, that the men of Jabesh Gilead did not come, and so they said, okay, well, that's our scapegoat. That's our way out. And so they decide, okay, let's send a small army to that town, and a small army goes to this little unsuspecting town. They kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. And what was left were 400 virgins that they bring back to give to the Benjaminites so that their line could continue. But there were still 200 short, and this grieves Israel because when self is king, we grieve about the wrong things. And so there, this grieves Israel that there were 200 men who didn't have wives. And so they come up with another plan, and this one's worse than the first. They decide to kidnap girls from a place called Shiloh at an annual festival. We don't know what festival was being held, but at some festival, some party, there would be a lot of virgins there dancing and doing their engaging in the festival, and so they decide to kidnap girls from this festival. Now, their rationale is that, well, the fathers of these girls would not be breaking their oath because they would not be willfully giving their daughter over to the Benjaminites, so they're safe. Instead, we'll just go and we'll forcibly take them. We'll kidnap them. That's the solution they're coming up with. You see, when self is king, self-justification becomes the way of salvation, and when self-justification becomes the way of salvation and we start trying to solve all the problems that we are creating in the world by ourselves, we just make more problems. We make things worse. Israel is a people lost amongst themselves at this point. At this point. They've caused their own problems and rather than repenting and returning to the Lord and just stop trying to fix everything and making things worse, they could have just stopped, repented, and cried out to the Lord for deliverance. But they've lost sight of his steadfast love. They've lost sight of his kindness. They've lost sight of everything good about who God is. And so they try to solve their own problems and they create more problems. Self-justification is a rabbit hole. And the further down one goes, the harder it becomes to see the light and get out. And so rather than justifying oneself, we, we should humble ourselves, admit that we're sinners, and get real about how we've contributed to the moral chaos that 
that surrounds our lives, that surrounds our families, that surrounds our societies, that surround our churches, that surround our nation, that surrounds our world. So that we might get real about that and stop trying to dig ourselves out of the holes that we've dug for ourselves, but instead cry out to the Lord who alone can rescue, who alone can save, who alone can deliver. Israel's not doing that at all in this story. And because they're not doing that at all in this story, it brings us to a surprising conclusion, a surprising ending to this depressing story about how life unravels when self is king. After Israel followed through with her self-justified solution, kidnapped ladies, demolished a town to allow the Benjamites to continue, look at verse 23. It says, the Benjaminites did this and took the number of women they needed from the dancers they caught. They went back to their own, key word, inheritance, rebuilt their cities and lived in them. At that time, each of the Israelites returned from there to his own tribe and family. Each returned from there to his own, key word, inheritance. So everybody just goes home. But they don't just go home, they go to inheritance. And that word inheritance echoes back to what God had promised to give the people of Israel. So they go back to receive their inheritance. Now think about that. This should be scandalous in your eyes. After all the repulsive, chaotic, and self-destructive behavior, Israel is still present, all 12 of the tribes. Israel has not been wiped off the face of the earth, even though Sodom was in the book of Genesis. Why is that? Why is Israel allowed to continue when Sodom was wiped off? Why didn't God do to them what he did to Sodom? Well, it's because the surprising ending to the book of Judges is that in the end, you discover that God's grace proves to be far more tenacious and in many ways far more scandalous than human depravity. That God's grace proves to be far more tenacious and in some ways far more scandalous than his own people's sin and depravity. That's the surprising ending of this story. God has committed to holding on to the people of Israel despite their wayward worship and despite their repulsive behavior. After all, he committed himself to them. He's made promises for them And these promises ultimately weren't dependent upon the people of Israel. They were dependent upon the plan and the purpose he was going to work out. And although Israel deserved to be wiped out, they deserved to be done away with, they're not. And so the surprise ending to the book of Judges is that even though in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever seemed right to him, God remained faithful to his people. He allowed them to continue, and they continued to receive their inheritance, the promises God made to them. Now, how does that strike you? Perhaps you're scratching your head wondering, does this mean that God isn't just? Does this mean that God isn't right? How can he just overlook all the atrocities that the people of Israel just committed? Isn't his justice going to be served, or has his justice been dismissed? Is God no longer right? Is God no longer good. And it's that question that we want to consider as we think about the faithfulness of God, as we think about the scandalous nature of his grace towards his people. When you get into the New Testament, 
And you discover the king who was to come, the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, the ultimate deliverer who would meet us outside of Eden so that Eden could be restored. This Jesus who came to get us, you know that he didn't just come to live a life, he came to die a certain kind of death. And in Romans chapter three, verse 25, the meaning of Jesus's death is explained. And listen to what it says. Romans 3, verse 25, God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, that is his death on the cross, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness or his rightness. Because of his restraint, God passed over sins previously committed. Do you know what that means? It means in the moment when the 12 tribes of Israel returned to receive their inheritance, God was passing over the sins that they were committed. Now, he wasn't passing over them because they were no big deal. He was passing over them because he was moving towards this moment. That although God in his restraint passed over sins previously committed, there came a moment when God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness, to uphold his justice at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God remains faithful to people who are unfaithful to him because Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty, the just penalty our sins deserve. Why do you think it's God can forgive us? Why do you think God can bless us with the inheritance that comes by being a part of his kingdom and being a part of his family? Well, he can do that because Jesus upholds the justice of God when he dies on the cross. And Jesus extends the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God through his death on the cross. That's the wisdom of the cross of Christ. The cross reminds us that God is faithful and he's far more faithful to us than we will ever be to him. The cross reminds us that God is graceful. The cross is about the scandalous grace of God that he would forgive those who are culpable and capable of so much darkness, who often live as if self is king, yet Jesus makes a way for our sins to be forgiven and the justice of God to be upheld. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just die an ordinary death, he died a, de- a death that's, that was an atoning death, a covering death. He went to the cross to satisfy the wrath of God so that all the wrath you that kind of swelled up in you when you read a story like this and you thought about that concubine and how she was treated and how angry you got and you probably want to jump on that Levite and just pound him to the ground, that wrath that swelled up in you is infinitely greater in the heart of God. It's infinitely greater in the heart of God. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, that infinitely more intense wrath, it all went upon Jesus so that he endured the intensity of that wrath so that you and I might know his faithfulness and receive our inheritance. So we run to Jesus, we trust in Jesus. We we also recognize that this story also hints at a day when, a day when God's judgment will come and those who haven't read the signs and looked at the warning signs and followed them to take refuge in Jesus, there's coming a day when when God's judgment falls, much like it did in Sodom and Gomorrah. And those who weren't covered in Jesus, those who haven't taken refuge in Jesus, that judgment is going to fall upon them. That is the warning of this story. It should sober us up 
It should humble us. It should cause us to mourn the human condition. It should cause us to weep when we think about the moral chaos of our lives and of the world that is. When we think about those that we love and we think about those who are living as though self is king, we should weep over that. And then we should find ourselves weeping in a way that leads towards crazy compassion and crazy sacrifice and crazy service where we are loving and serving our neighbors the way we have been loved and served in Jesus so that they might come to see the same beauty in Jesus that we see, that they might come to trust in the same Savior that we trust in, so that the self may be dethroned and Jesus may be enthroned as the rightful king who is both just and merciful all at the same time. God is faithful, God is patient, but his patience won't last forever. Let's pray.